Hello, everyone. Tom Slater from Spikes here. Before we get into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who donates to Spiked. I know it's a hard time out there for many of you, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash in order to fund our work and make sure that we can reach more and more people. I also wanted to let you know about a fund drive that we're doing for the next couple of weeks to fortify us for the months ahead. And for a limited time only, those who donate £50 or more can get their hands on a free signed copy of How Woke One, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams. And not just that, you can also get a year subscription to Spike Supporters. This is our donor community where you can get access to live events and to all kinds of other exclusive perks. So in order to make your donation to claim your copy of How Woke One and your Spike Supporters membership, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate and follow the instructions there. Once again, that's £50 or more donation. And to do that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me again this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, PayPal's war on dissent, the unravelling of multiculturalism in Leicester and Birmingham, and the uprising in Iran. So PayPal, the world's famous payments processor, has started kicking off some dissenting voices from its platform, most notably the Free Speech Union. Tom, you've written about this this week. Do you want to explain what the hell is going on? No, this is a really crazy case. I think it demonstrates the sort of raising of the stakes with big tech censorship. It's been building for some time, but whereas a Twitter or a Facebook can deplatform you, something like a PayPal or a GoFundMe can eff- effectively defund you at yeah. this point. And that's what we've seen happen most remarkably to the Free Speech Union. But as you say, there's been a clutch of other organisations dissenting in their own way who've also been kicked off, um, whether that's us for them as kind of um, anti-lockdown par- um, children's rights group, as well as the Daily Skeptic, Toby Young, who runs the Free Speech Union's publication and his own personal account. And there's been a kind of string of these recently as well, kind of quote-unquote anti-war websites who have been kicked off. And time and again, they get, essentially get the same very opaque message, which yeah. is that you have violated our acceptable use policy. No explanation as to what that specifically means. The policy, broadly speaking, you know, is about fraud and dodgy activities, but also includes the, you know, anything that is activities that promote hate or intolerance and things of this nature. And given the um, number of accounts that seem to have been in this particular story this week with the Free Speech Union, the Daily Skeptic, us for them, in quite short order around the same time, it obviously raises questions about whether or not this is politically motivated. Yeah. I mean, how could it not be? And uh, as I say, it's just this sort of new phase that it seems like we're in, which has been bubbling around for some time. I mean, PayPal was kicking people off back in 2018. They kind of went after a mix of hard right and kind of Antifa groups. Um, some of the other examples I've been talking about. Um, and then, of course, we saw with GoFundMe with the truckers back in February, was it? where they essentially froze millions of dollars of donations to mm. the truckers. Um, and at one point, were even saying they were going to redirect it to other charities unless it was actually claimed. So it's essentially a financial war on dissent. Um, and something which, you know, we've, we've almost gotten accustomed, unfortunately, so to people being silenced for expressing certain views. But now it's essentially starving particular organisations of funds yeah. if their views happen to cut against the grain, it seems like. And so if people weren't taking it seriously before, they've surely got to take it seriously now when you've got something like the Free Speech Union, whose only crime, it seems like, is that it defends freedom of speech, then surely we've got to take this a lot more seriously than people have been doing up until this point. 
Definitely. And you mentioned, you know, the kind of GoFundMe example where, you know, potentially um, millions of dollars being redirected. I mean, it's not even clear what's going to happen to a lot of people's mm. uh, money that they've yeah. got in PayPal. They've not been able to access it. I think they've got like 180 days at which point PayPal will work out if they owe them damages or yeah. whatever that means. But it leaves so many organisations in complete limbo. I think the free speech in like a third of their members pay. Mm. via PayPal. So it's very, very serious. So it really is a kind of financial war <laughs> in that sense. Ella. Yeah. And groups like us for them have, you know, come out and very openly said, we're, we're not a big organization. We're essentially mm. skin. I mean, this is pretty much cutting off our entire lifeline. And the thing about the free speech union, as Tom says, is that, I mean, it's a functioning union. It's an organization that provides legal aid and mm. proper legal services to yeah individuals and groups i mean this it's it's it's, not partisan either it's no it will defend anyone who's free speech needs defending yeah and i I don't think that even if you are a loudmouth a politico commentator you should have your paypal Mm. frozen but this isn't the case with the free speech union um and the fact that it ranges from you know you know it seems to be at this moment in time kind of groups that are related to dissent around coronavirus Mm. is only going to spin, uh, you know, conspiracy theories while, but there's also some serious questions to be asked about why is it in particular groups that are focused on these kind of issues that have been um, attacked at this time. And the thing about, you know, Tom raised the Canadian truckers. I remember so few people were talking about how serious that was at the time, about the idea that you would have citizens have their money withheld from them. There was talk about, and you know, the, you know, everyone always goes on about how brilliant a cashless society and all of that is, but it really brought home how precarious you could a precarious a situation you could find yourself in if through your political actions and expressing your views and actually in the case of Canadian truckers defending your livelihood mm. quite literally um that you could have huge corporates and organizations starve you out and there was virtually no discussion and support or solidarity given to you know in wider mainstream media to the truckers at the time because they were like these dirty kind of you know, well, they were basically COVID idiots and like that. They're treated as anti-vaxxers, yeah. even though, you know, there's obviously a difference between opposing mandatory vaccination and opposing vaccines per se. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not been, I mean, it's still early days and you hope that a lot of people find their um, belief in free speech in the next few days to support Toby Young and the Free Speech Union and us for them and all the rest of them. But, you know, it it makes you think we have just had this kind of discussion only last week about free speech in relation to anti-monarchists getting arrested and all that kind of stuff. Now is the time to, I think, really call some people's bluff who've been talking about free speech online and say, this is when it gets serious, when people's livelihoods are being quite literally threatened. So come on. That's a good point, actually. Have any of the new free speech warriors who've come on board to the cause last week, have they noticed this PayPal? Story. I'm of not course, sure. they haven't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, even the ones who've had They've brushes, noticed it, but they won't. But they won't have mm-hmm. said anything about it. And, and this, these things have got so extensive that there have been sort of left, normally left-wing groups have been targeted by this yeah. stuff. Now, famously, Navarra Media getting temporarily shunted off of their YouTube account and what seemed like a mistake. You know, for about 24 hours with free speech warriors, and now they're incredibly silent. Similar thing happened to an SWP Facebook page a while ago. Um, but as they say, they don't care. And yeah. it's interesting. I mean, now it seems the tendency is to just ignore these things. But it, at the very least, a case like this rubbishes all the previous sort of arguments that mm. you had now that it's free speech organisations that are being targeted. And now that it's not just deplatforming, it's also defunding. Like at what point does all of those old nonsense arguments about, you know, what are we up to now? You've got to 
if you don't like Facebook and Twitter, you've got to build your own platform. If you don't like PayPal, you can build your own world-leading, you know, money transaction Just platform. Just build your own World Wide Web. I mean, exactly. You know, like, at what an alternative point, to the internet. <laughs> like, at what point are we going to admit, particularly because uh, it's often a handful or often one particular platform or service that will really dominate in one particular area. Everyone yeah. uses it, the network effect, all of that kind of stuff. At what point are we going to recognise that essentially discarding people from those mainstream channels of the internet mm. is a form of crippling their free speech. That yeah. censorship is not just a matter for the state. And what are we going to say? Like, you know, free speech, you know, your free speech hasn't been abridged because you're still allowed to sit in a room by yourself and mutter. Yeah. Like that seems to be the end point of what these people are arguing. Obviously it's about the thing about big tech censorship is that it's such a pernicious problem because it evades previous ways in which we might fight back against censorship because it's so incredibly unaccountable mm. and so incredibly unhinged. I think what you've got here is a neat demonstration of what happens when you give these billionaires, and these corporates, the moral responsibility to clamp down on speech. It's going to be both tyrannical and often quite sort of unhinged in many respects. And, and the, well. the kind of previous examples, I mean, you alluded to some of them earlier, Tom, um, you know, people like Tommy Robinson, people mm. like Alex Jones. I mean, this does illustrate that you have to defend everyone's free speech, right? The time to speak out against mm -hmm. this was in 2018. Now it's kind of too late almost. Well, I mean, yes, in a way, but I think it's the, the, the thing about what's happening in terms of the sort of snowball effect of all of this mm. is that I think it's making more and more people wake up and, you know, I would, it's never too late to come out and try and turn the tide. But the important thing to also note is that, you know, Tom says that they're unhinged. They're also, in, it's intensely biased mm. because if you're, if you're going along their sort of incredibly vague guidelines about hate, spreading hate and offense or whatever kind of words they use, mm. I mean, it's clear as day that there are groups on the other side of the political yep. divide that have been just, I mean, not, I don't think the Free Speech Union has ever really been hateful, by the way, <laughs> but, you know, have, have expressed kind of engage in that kind of hateful discourse on mm. social media, you know, debates about gender and trans ideology is, as we know, pretty toxic. None of these people ever get um, yeah. themselves cut. None of, none of these people ever face this kind of discrimination. And that's not to say that, oh, there's a kind of conspiracy going on, but there is, you know, there's quite clearly a political element to all of this or a dynamic that says there are certain views that are okay, mm. no matter how kind of viciously they express themselves. And there are certain views that are absolutely to be banned, no matter how kind of <laughs> deeply polite and follow the rules they are. And I think that we have to start calling out as well as defending free speech, start calling out that political bias in all of this. So tensions between uh, Britain's Hindu and Muslim communities have started to reach boiling point in some places. We saw clashes in Leicester at the weekend, and this has now spread to Birmingham. A lot of the time the police sort of watching on, but there's been, you know, scores and scores of arrests. People have been found with weapons. I mean, Tom, this is quite frightening, isn't it? Oh, and it's been going on for a couple of weeks now. Mm. I mean, it all seemed to um, originally kick off with an India-Pakistan cricket match, at which reportedly um, some groups of young Hindus were chanting death to Pakistan, things boiled over. Since then, you've had this kind of um, night after night of pitched battles, essentially. Yeah. You know, people were getting pulled out of their houses. Um, often a lot of, you know, WhatsApp misinformation flaring things up as well. You know, reports of this girl's been kidnapped or this um, temple's been attacked and all the rest of it, or this mosque's been attacked. And then that leading to more and more anger and more and more recriminations. And, uh, you know, incredibly inflammatory images, people, you know, stealing saffron flags, setting them on fire. The yeah. scenes outside of the um, the Hindu temple in Smethwick, as you were alluding to, 
um, in which it seemed to be a, a, a bunch of old Hindu men, you know, surrounded by this mob of like, looked like at least a hundred, you know, masked Muslim men chanting, chanting Allah Akbar and standing up on the um, railings and throwing bottles and all the rest of it. It's really, really quite serious. And especially it's, it's striking in a place like Leicester, which had it sort of been preening itself mm. for some time as a sort of model of multiculturalism and majority minority city in which everyone got along absolutely fine. But I think what has really been demonstrated, and we'll probably get into the question of outside agitators in a second, mm. is almost putting that to one side, that the kind of bromides of multiculturalism, the idea that you can make a harmonious society by constantly emphasising difference between different kinds of groups by being quite relaxed about the kind of communalization of politics, um, about putting everyone in their boxes and all the rest of it, um, has serious impacts further on down the line when you corrode any sense of broader communal ties, not just between minorities and white British population, but within intra-minorities themselves as yeah. well. And I think we're seeing the consequences of all that. Regardless of what originally sparked this, that's definitely the context that I think we need to talk about. Yeah, Ella, I mean, it's quite striking. I mean, clearly for people to get into this level of violence and kind of um, tension, they obviously see themselves primarily as, you know, either Muslims or Pakistani or Hindus and Indian, you know, rather than British. Mm. It's been really frustrating um, listening to, you know, people like the ex-Labour MP Claudia Webb, um, who's been sort of doing some of the media rounds, um, essentially, you know, engaging in platitudes about how bad violence is and then sort of saying, well, don't really know where this has come from because it reveals what has been the misunderstanding for such a long time, you know, that Tom talked about multiculturalism is that sort of statistically you can point to Leicester and say, oh, what a model city, you know, the way in which people describe it. And Brendan makes this point in his article on Spike this week that, you know, people have hailed it as a kind of way in which there are groups of these people and they live in the same geographical area. Therefore, life must be brilliant. Mm. But in actual fact, that's not that's not an indicator of any kind of real uh, that reality about the way in which communities interact just because they simply are put in um, a similar geographical area. And obviously somewhere like Leicester, tensions have arisen precisely because there is no sense of them being from Leicester and then being from a neighbourhood in Leicester, but then being in their um, kind of seeking to ingrain their their identity groups as Muslims and Hindus. And the really interesting thing watching these videos is that it's predominantly young guys. It's mm. it's a younger generation. And actually there's, you know, a kind of anecdotally reading some people talking to reporters and stuff. The older generation of people living in Leicester on both sides of this conflict have said, well, I mean, we've got along mm. together for a very long time. Yeah. And it's this kind of new generation, particularly among some of the Muslim groups, and there's been video circling of this one individual who you saw outside Cineworld, who you saw outside, he's a particular mm. agitator. Shaquille Afzal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's, who's turning this into not just a kind of lesser dispute, but going on about Lebanon, about Iraq, about Afghanistan, yeah. making this a much more global thing. And the failure of anyone in power in politics in that area to recognise that is just, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it's interesting, we were talking, I mean, kind of around the time of Salman Rushdie, how often it is the kind of second generation um, mm. immigrants who are searching for that um, identity, for that connection mm -hmm. with the homeland, rather than people who actually know, um, you know, Pakistan mm -hmm. or India from, from their own experience. And, yeah. and the really interesting thing is, obviously, you know, it's kind of coincidental this is happening at the same time that we've just had this sort of big national moment in the form of 
the Queen's funeral. Mm. Where and you know it's a kind of kind of a known fact again anecdotally, but most people will say that actually a previous generation of immigrants have much more connection with that sort of Britishness that was displayed last week. Yeah, and then their sons and daughters who are second generation tend to reject that much more viciously. And so there's that interesting tension and that's kind be, of going they'll be, on. They'll be encouraged to reject that in schools mm. and via, mm. via you know, the government itself. I mean, it's bizarre. Anyway, Tom. No, definitely. I mean, it, uh, one thing we should talk about is obviously the um, the core context that many people are talking about is the uh, sort of alleged involvement or st- or the stirring up of tensions on mm. behalf of sort of uh, Hindu, for Hindu nationalist um, speakers speaking at particular Hindu temples or there's kind of just general unconfirmed reports that they're kind of there stirring things up or whatever. Um, it's obviously th- something that should be discussed. Um, it's obviously something that, sh- that you know needs to be um, thought about in this mix. But again, I think there's a sort of tendency to, on the one hand, it, there's this strange thing where people are very comfortable, particularly on the left, kind of condemning this far-right Hindutva threat, mm. as they would see it. And yet when you see the sort of um, Islamist sort of, uh, presence outside of that place in Smethwick or whatever, it's just not really discussed. So even now, like identity politics kind of creeps into it as far as the groups that we're willing to condemn and the groups mm. that we're willing to provide a bit of cover for. But I think it's also the thing where it kind of lets society off the hook because you watch a lot of those videos and these are lads with Brummy accents, with yeah. Leicester accents. Um, and you see, you know, it's hard to tell, you know, the things will come out in the wash in relation to a lot of the people who've been arrested and what they're particular, you know, where, where particular towns they're from and all the rest of it. But to treat this as a kind of outside agitated thing entirely, mm. even though that's obviously a factor, I think avoids the fact that as you both have been talking about, there is this fascinating phenomenon with the younger generation in particular, who their sense of ethnic or religious identity is almost so much stronger and can therefore be sort of um, redirected in certain cases down more extreme sort of avenues than even their parents or grandparents' yeah. generation. Um, and it also gets mixed up in these conflicts. You see it with a lot of the um, the videos coming out from out um, it, from Smethwick with this kind of general sort of like nihilistic sort of bad boy persona that they mm. sort of want to portray. So all of this gets mixed up. And what you end up with is horrendous tension um, and something which it, it seems like we don't even have the kind of vocabulary to discuss or to condemn anymore because of the fact that multiculturalism has just been seen as an unalloyed good for so long. I mean, we should we should always make clear for anyone who still isn't listening that we're not talking about a multiracial society, we're not talking about a multi-faith society. This specific approach, which is to encourage all of society to be like different communities with their backs turned to one another, that, you know, you're essentially in your own little box and that that's the way it is, that there can be no sort of discussion about something that everyone might have in common and what does that look like identifying with something bigger than our own narrow ethnic um, communal background has been really disastrous. And you see it, the fact that we're now kind of importing essentially a lot of the tensions from say the South continent has a lot to do with say councillors in those areas and politicians mm. in those areas trying to weaponize issues like Kashmir or whatever to shore up support when they should be talking about bin collections. Yeah. Uh, all of this is, is the, is the consequence of all of that. And it's something which if, if this isn't going to kind of rattle people out of that, then we're going to have a serious problem. And if you can't deal with it appropriately, then you're going to risk an even worse backlash because people are going to say, oh, that's just what they're like, yeah. isn't it? When that's not what we're talking about. So over the past few days, huge protests have erupted in Iran. The spark for this was the death in police custody of Massa Amini, who refused to put on a hijab in public as is dictated by the Iranian morality police. Um, Tom, what have you made of these these protests? I mean, it's astonishing bravery of all these people, particularly women, to come out mm-hmm. into the open, refuse to wear the hijab, refuse to 
you know, bow down to the Iranian Islamic regime. No, incredible bravery. I mean, it's been it's been bubbling away for about four or five years now, this sort of mm. particular form of protest, the sort of White Wednesdays campaign of um, women going out in public, taking off their hijabs, challenging the morality police, um, cutting them down to size, filming yeah. it, putting it on the internet. Um, and now in relation to this one, you know, Kurdish Iranian woman who has essentially died in police custody, it seems like after being quite badly beaten, although the, you know, the circumstances are yet to properly come out has just galvanised that. What I f- find quite interesting as well is how the fact that very quickly it's, it's gotten bigger than that particular issue yeah. as well. You know, you're seeing um, demonstrations even in Tehran, because originally it starts off in the kind of, you know, Iranian Kurdistan. And then, um, you know, even in even in the capital city, people, men and women, not chanting, you know, death to dictator and, and calling for the um, Islamic Republic to fall. So it's it's it, there's been a kind of series of protests in Iran over the past four or five years over all different kinds of issues. But what you and I think this is the latest one to kind of spark that level of interest. But yeah, what incredible courage certainly mm. from the women and men engaged in this, up against a, a very brutal, thuggish, theocratic regime. Which the more it seems to fail the people it's supposed to, its own citizens, the more authoritarian and in this case misogynistic it seems to become. Mm. And Ella, I mean, what have you made to the kind of international response? It feels like there hasn't been the kind of solidarity that you might hope for in a, for a, you know something as inspiring as this. I think there has been, there's been a kind of, I think partly because this has been happening for a, a while, there hasn't been so much focus on it. But the thing that I think might change things is that while, as Tom says, women have been taking off their hijabs and doing these kind of protests for a few years now, the thing that has changed um, in the last week or so is that there have been significantly, there are men joining women. So it's not just um, women standing up on pillars, which we've seen before and taking off their hijabs or indeed yeah. cutting off their hair, but mm. actually that there's, uh, which is, you know, like it's hard to explain how extreme that is that in mm. given in the context and around that is a really significant political act. Um, then, but we now have men not only supporting the women, but, you know, videos of when a woman gets attacked and slapped in the face, men going and defending her and attacking that person. And also broadening the issue to say that it's not just that women should be forced to wear a hijab, but the whole nature of the morality police and the way in which relationships are and uh, and people's kind of daily lives are policed um, in public is wrong. I think that what you want is for not this to be just another little protest mm-hmm. that happens mm. on a Wednesday or that happens, but to build into just something a social media quite campaign, yeah, yeah, but to build into something quite significant. And there, I was listening to the radio this morning. There are reports that um, government buildings have been taken over in certain um, cities and towns. That people, I mean, people really mean business, and that's that's certainly something to be celebrated. But I think it really brings home, and this is something that you know is not just pertains to Iran, but is a lesson for kind of the world over. It shows how important the issue of women's freedom is, how much of a litmus test it is for a free society. That on the basis that you know, the, the very fact that a woman bearing her hair would be such a threat to um, a national regime tells you something about the importance of. Uh, women's autonomy and the idea of women being allowed to make choices for themselves that I think will echo in discussions we have here, discussions being had in America about abortion, wherever. Um, So I think it's very important to see this as a specific thing that's happening in Iran, but actually an international issue of solidarity with women's freedom. Mm. You just, what is striking though, I mean, you gestured gestured to it there, Fraser, is how damp the solidarity always is when these things Mm. flare up. I mean, it's, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that's going on. Particularly in the context where, say, 
Trump's America was literally presented as Gilead, you yeah. know, bringing people out into the streets. We've all seen that kind of that Amdram get up referencing the Margaret Atwood novel and series. Um, and yet when this kind of flares up, they're oddly quiet. Like there's no big solidarity marches organised. Now, obviously you talk to kind of old school feminists. Yeah. They'll be, you know, full-throatedly behind it. But this kind of woke left considers mm. itself to be feminist, very concerned about women's issues in, in some senses. They do just go quiet. And I, I think you can't get that away from that sort of identitarian approach to politics, which yeah. is that they struggle to condemn this regime because they see it as some ways or means Islamophobic, I suppose. They see it as, well, that's just what they do there. What is it? Mm. But I think they should answer that question because this is something in which people were putting their lives on the line, calling out for solidarity, calling out for support. And yet it is diminished. You know, people put up a tweet, people put up a hashtag, but it's not something that will, you know, preoccupy them for even more than the hour, it yeah. seems like. And that's very, very strange. Do you think, I mean, you know, in, in the West, um, the hijab has almost become a symbol of intersectionality mm. rather than a symbol of the symbol of oppression that it obviously is in somewhere like Iran. Yeah, well, you got to remember that, you know, that there is also this sort of historical illiteracy in that people think that it's ever was ever mm. thus in mm. Iran and don't remember that the imposition of these kind of incredibly strict Islamist doctrines only have come about but you know relatively recent recently yeah. and that actually and that plenty of people living in iran right now remember a time um you know in the 70s and before when life was nearly as free and open as in the west and there's like stories of after the revolution people going out and literally handing out headscarves yeah. to people and all this kind of and stuff and so there's a there's a you know this is this is not some alien country in yeah. which freedom and tolerance and uh you know rebellion and all of that never ever um, was experienced. And so it's then becomes increasingly odd that you would have, for example, in places, you know, in, in the UK, but or places like France or stuff like that, have people holding up the hijab, this thing that is such a symbol of oppression in one country as a, uh, as a, a kind of a symbol of freedom. Now, mm. obviously it's spiked. We think we believe in religious tolerance and we think that people, religious freedom wear whatever you like on your head and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't, it, it makes no difference to us, but there is something about the way in which there is this kind of, uh, mismatch between a fetishization of what is predominantly a symbol of women's oppression. You know, let's not forget that the hijab isn't just innocuous. It's something that is, has a kind of a political and moral meaning to it. Um, is fine here, but <laughs> they don't see right. It's women are literally being beaten and in, and in some cases killed yeah. for it in Iran. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.